For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, that is Messiah. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. First of all, Merry Christmas. As we record this podcast, we imagine you all bustling around preparing for the celebration of the birth of our Lord later this week. We pray for you and for your gatherings, asking that you would know the peace and truth of the Lord Jesus deeply and in new ways this holiday season. This week, we'll be wrapping up our series in Luke by looking at the birth and dedication of Jesus. It never ceases to amaze me how scripture seems to deepen with meaning each time I reread these old familiar passages, and it seems to me that this is uniquely true of the Christmas story. Every year, it impacts me in new and deeper ways. Perhaps this is the nature of what it is to grow in the knowledge and love of our Lord year after year as we walk with Him and abide in Him. So join us with your Bibles and your holiday coffee, (laughs) and follow along as we look for the evidences and eyewitnesses of the birth of our Lord in the pages of scripture. But before we get started, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read new online articles every week. You can sign up there for emails that will deliver those articles right to your inbox each Friday. There's a donation tab there as well if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support as we work together to reach Adventists with the gospel. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Colleen, I have a question for you. Okay. I want to know how your view of scripture as a believer has changed your thoughts about the Christmas story. As an Adventist, did the Christmas story feel rooted in history like it does now? Not like it does now. I knew it was real. Mm -hmm. I believed it was real. But I didn't have any kind of sense of how many people could have verified the birth of Christ. I didn't have any sense of... Um, how we knew when. I mean, I figured it had to do with Caesar Augustus, and we could figure out when he was on the throne. But I didn't have any kind of a sense of it being like a historical event, mm-hmm. like the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was kind of a, a meta story, to use a kind of modern term, more than a specific identifiable moment in time. Understanding the real people who were involved and understanding how they thought and reacted and felt and what they said has just been overwhelming, actually. And seeing how intentional this was, that God set this up and God appointed these people to be in His eternal Word with the words that they spoke and the validation they gave to the birth and identity of Jesus, I did not have any sense of that. You know, because I thought the Bible was written by sort of primitive people who interpreted it the way they understood it, and so we're getting their impressions. I did not see that God established His Word and the events surrounding the birth of Christ so that we could verify it and know it was true. It's just amazing. What about you? Same. You know, as a believer, my view of Scripture has changed so much. We all remember that fundamental belief on the the Scriptures. They really weren't authoritative like they are now. Uh, for sure. And so, I knew like you that it it was connected to history. I wasn't sure that we had all of the facts right or all of the details clear. And because it, it's only really in Luke and a little bit in Matthew, it was almost like 
okay, two people told us about it. Can we really rely on two people? Oh, yeah. But looking at it and seeing how much they relied on so many people to compile that information and more importantly, they were inspired by God himself as they wrote, it makes every point they make count and it becomes far more reliable when you understand that God's word is reliable. You know, Nikki, what you said about understanding that God inspired them, I think that's one of the biggest differences for me, because that used to mean, here's a thought, here's an impression, now take it and run with it the way you understand it. Mm -hmm. That's not inspiration, according to Scripture. So that has made a difference to me. Well, Nikki, why don't we uh, look at our passage for today, which is found in Luke 2. This story of the birth of Jesus is the one that's read at every Christmas pageant from time immemorial. You know, growing up in Adventist schools, you probably heard the narrator at the school play saying, now, in those days, a decree to be taxed went forth from Caesar Augustus, you know, and then the story. But I'd like us to read through the passage we're going to look at today. We're going to start with Luke 2, verse 1, and we're going to read clear to verse 38, where Jesus is presented at the temple for dedication and for Mary's cleansing offerings after the birth of her son. So, Nikki, would you mind reading that for us? I'd just like to ask us all to listen really carefully to the details, because there's stuff in here I did not see as an Adventist, which is kind of shocking to me now. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. I'll be reading from the NASB. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people." For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
And when the days for the purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then, as a widow at the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thank you, Nikki. This is really kind of a full and amazing passage. And I'll just say right up front, one of the things that really strikes me is verse 33, where it just says in Luke's own writing, and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Now, as an Adventist, it was driven home to me that Joseph wasn't really his father, that God was his father. And of course, that's true. Mm -hmm. Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus, but Luke calls him his father. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, when I married Richard and became a stepmother, I suddenly understood Joseph in a new way. I may not have actually physically given birth to my sons, but I was their mother and I was the woman that filled that role in their lives for Mm -hmm. so many years. And Joseph was the man God chose to teach Jesus how to be a man. And in the sight of Israel, Joseph was his father. Mm -hmm. And Joseph's lineage was also of the tribe of Judah, the seed of David. And that gave him legal standing in the community, not just biological standing through Mary, but legal standing through his father. So it was a very carefully chosen person. Just as God chose Mary, he chose Joseph. And I just find that to be amazing and insightful and comforting and somehow redemptive, that I can actually think of Joseph as playing a fatherly role in Jesus's life, and I don't have to keep saying, like, the Adventists always taught me to say, well, Joseph wasn't really his father. Mm. And I don't know what the purpose of that continued reiteration was, because the Jesus I learned as an Adventist wasn't fully God. He wasn't the God of Scripture. So, I'm not sure why Joseph was denigrated in my mind so much. But anyway... Luke redeems that. So, going back to this, Nikki, when we look at the beginning of this chapter where we hear about the birth of Jesus, what stands out to you? Well, again, I always love seeing the verifiable details because I just glazed over those in the past. So, 
I really focused on them this time. And it was interesting to me to see that this census was to cover all the inhabited earth. Yeah. Oh boy, that's a lofty goal. But that's a really big moment in human history. Right. That they're going to try to take a census of all the inhabitants of the earth. That makes it an easy historical moment to pinpoint right. when we go back and try to find the Messiah. That's true. I found it interesting that Caesar Augustus, I, I read this in the NASB study notes, um, that Caesar Augustus, who was perhaps one of the greatest emperors of Rome, he had actually taken Rome from a republic, which it had been in its earliest iteration before in the BC years, to an empire. And he had taken it to the place where he governed the entire Mediterranean world. The census was for military purposes, but Jews were exempted from military service for the emperor, which was interesting too. Mm -hmm. But still, they had to be counted. And it's also uh, interesting to me that Caesar Augustus is the one who established what is known in secular history as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, the large, peaceful empire where wars had kind of ceased and the empire had stretched around the known world. He led the golden age of Roman literature and architecture. And I remember learning in college, in my music major, when I took um, music history, one of the two years that I had to take music history, one of the things I learned was that Roman architecture is known in the whole history of Western civilization for contributing significant civil things that had never been done for the civic life of people before. The aqueducts, the public latrines were interesting. The arches that characterized Roman architecture, Greek architecture, didn't use arches. It just used pillars and straight ceilings. But Rome masterminded the arch and could make larger buildings with more volume, higher ceilings, and stronger construction. Caesar Augustus was the emperor who reigned over the, like the pinnacle of the flourishing of this cultural and civic and architectural contribution to the world that still remains. In fact, looking back in history, the Roman roads were the things that made it possible for Paul and the apostles to take the gospel into the Roman world, into the Gentile world. There were means of transportation and travel that had not existed prior to Rome's huge, massive, large-scale construction. This is the period of the world's history into which Jesus was born by God's design. Yes, in the fullness of time. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing that was interesting to me was in verse 2 where it named the governor of Syria. Well, was Syria part of Israel? No. Not at all. It was a neighboring nation, which interestingly enough figured in the history of Israel over and over the Old Testament mentions Syria. In fact, remember that story where Elijah ran away from Jezebel and he ran to Mount Horeb and hid, and there was a whirlwind and a fire and an earthquake, but God was not in those. And then he heard a still small voice and God chastised him for running and fed him and comforted him and said, now you go back and do the work I'm giving you to do. And one of the jobs God gave Elijah to do way back then was to anoint the next king of Syria. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, Syria was not an Israelite nation. It wasn't part of Israel. It wasn't an Israelite territory. But God asked him to anoint the next king of Syria and the next king of the nation of Israel 
and his own successor, Elisha. So, it's just interesting to me that the Bible uses Syria as a point of reference politically, historically, throughout the Bible, and here we can pinpoint another person in Syria. So, that's another evidence Mm -hmm. of the time of Jesus' birth. I think as an Adventist, I thought all of the things that happened in the Bible kind of happened in a vacuum to like just one group of people. I didn't think of God being sovereign over all of the nations like He is even today, raising up kings and kingdoms for His purposes. It's really fascinating that we see that here in the story of the birth of Christ. That is a great point. I didn't think of it that way either. And you know what's really funny, Nikki, Hmm. is that now I look back at Daniel and I see that God gave all those prophecies to Daniel about the Gentile world. Mm -hmm. Who knew? I mean, as Adventists, it was just all about, you know, the Antichrist. (laughs) Or the special people. Or the special people. That was it. Only two groups. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) And that vegetarian Daniel. (laughs) Well, I remember the first time I read God's promises about a future for Egypt. Right. I was like, wait a minute. I know. <laughs> Why are they factoring in here? Exactly. He's sovereign over all people. And like Paul says in Acts 17, where he's preaching on Mars Hill, that from one man, God made all the nations of men and established the times and places where each would be. So yes, there's nobody that comes into power, no nation that comes into existence, and no nation that disappears apart from God's appointed plan, which is such a different view than I had. Mm -hmm. So, in these first few verses, we see all of this Gentile history and influence, but we also see all of this Jewish history because we we have evidence that this baby that's to be born is fulfilling Messianic prophecy just by way of being born in Bethlehem. Yes. It's interesting that Luke quotes or refers to Micah when he talks about this. In verse 4, Luke says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Well, there's a couple things about that that are interesting to me. One is that he's clearly identifying Joseph. And he hasn't said a lot about Joseph, just that Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph. But here he tells us that Joseph was of the house of David. So we know that he's of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, and that because of his heritage, he had to go back to the house of his father. He had to go to Bethlehem to be registered for the census. That's kind of interesting to me too, because Joseph was from Nazareth, which is way up in the northern part of the kingdom by the Sea of Galilee, and he had to go clear down into the southern kingdom to Bethlehem, which is about today's terms-ish, three miles from Jerusalem. So, he had to register there, and Micah was the prophet that said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. That's the one place in the Old Testament that clearly named the birthplace of Jesus. And here we see Joseph launching out on a journey, a long journey on foot, no doubt, to be registered, to be taxed, or to be registered for the census in his familial hometown. That prophecy that Micah gave also indicates that the Messiah would be from ancient days, from of old. So, we have the eternality 
of the Messiah. We have the divinity of this baby that would be born packed right there into the prophecy. You start to understand why Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know all these things. Right. Wow. So what do we learn in the next couple of verses, verses five to seven? It was while they were there that the days were completed for her to give birth. And you know, I don't know if it's from children's books or what, but I always pictured her on the brink of delivering while they traveled and knocked on doors in the middle of the night looking Uh for somewhere to stay. Those kind of details come from the imaginations of people. It may have happened that way, but it may not have. Right. It's just interesting to me how much people have fleshed out from these two very short verses. But we do know she was very pregnant as Mm -hmm. they made this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it's also interesting that here in these just brief words, we get the picture of the overrun nature of the city with all the people flocking into the city because of the law of Caesar. They couldn't find a place to stay in an inn. And isn't it fascinating that they were born in a manger and people could visit them in the manger that couldn't have visited them in an inn? Who, for example, could visit them in a manger? Those shepherds. Yes. Now, what do you find interesting about the shepherds, Nikki? Oh, this was a really fun one to look at this year. It's always different. It's always something each year. But this year, I've really pondered those shepherds. When I have thought in the past about the first people to proclaim who Christ is outside of his family, who's told by the angels, I always think of Nathaniel and I think of of Peter. But here we have the shepherds being told by the angels that this is the Messiah. The Messiah has come on the night of his birth. And it struck me that the contrast between John the Baptist being born in this prominent family, surrounded by crowds, people all over the hill country, pondering who this child is, all of the signs surrounding him with his father being mute and then able to speak and prophesying. and, And then there's Jesus, who's born in a manger. And all of the signs in the glory that come on that night come to shepherds in a field. And they were considered the lowest class of Israelite life. If they had a caste system, they Mm -hmm. would have been at the bottom. And one of the things that struck me as I read this, in verse 9, well, I'll read 8 and 9. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And what jumped out to me was the glory of the Lord that shone around them. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, and He's a human baby in a manger, but He is Lord and He is omnipresent. And at the same time He's laying under the gaze of His mother, His glory is shining around these shepherds, telling them, your Messiah is here. That's really moving, Nikki. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it that way. And I also found it interesting that they were terribly frightened. Yeah. And that the angel had to tell them, do not be afraid. Yeah. Once again, there is that contrast with Ellen White, who never seemed to be afraid to see either her angel or the lovely Jesus. And that is such an unbiblical position. Yeah. The glory of the Lord is frightening, even to people who believe, and they need to be comforted. And that angel proceeded to tell them that he had this good news for today in the city of David— There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is Messiah. They knew, I don't know how old these shepherds were, but they knew that this child was the long-awaited Messiah. Yeah, they knew. 
And we know they knew and we know they believed them because they immediately went to go see him. So you have all of these other people up to this point wondering, who is this child? Who is John? You know, wondering about what's going on around them, but the shepherds were told. Yes. And they were not only told by an angel who first appeared to them, but the sky was suddenly filled with angels (laughs) singing. Isn't that an amazing thing to give to some shepherds who knew the skies? They were used to the stars and the night sky in Bethlehem. And suddenly, these angels are singing, glory to God. My goodness, I'd have gotten up and gone too. <laughs> what an exciting night. And, and by all human standards, who's this kid? Who exactly. is this? But God is rejoicing and celebrating and throwing a birthday party in a field with some shepherds. Right. Nobody of importance was there. Jesus had the humble, unknown birth, while John had the public, like you said, the public birth filled with witnesses and important people. And then they go and they see the child, and when they see him, they're now determined to evangelize. (laughs) (laughs) And they go and make known the statement which had been told to them about this child, and that statement was that unto you was born this day in the city of David, your Messiah. Yeah. He's here. I've spent a lot of time in Matthew, and you kind of just jump in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some of the story of his early years when John the Baptist was saying, you know, this is him, and all the crowds are coming to John the Baptist. It's almost like you're jumping in the middle of the story, and I used to wonder, how did he get such a crowd? But there was just buzz. There was always buzz. Yeah, You had the amazing story of who this child was and where he came from. And the people were waiting even then because they knew he was going to come as a forerunner. Right. And then you have in Bethlehem, all of these people who are saying, an angel told these shepherds that the Messiah is here. And so there's this anticipation. It's a rumored anticipation so that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it's like, it's finally here. Right. The people are ready. They've been anticipating and waiting for this. One thing I thought was um, interesting, and it's not an unknown phrase, but I really did think about it this week and thought, what an interesting description of Mary, that as the shepherds went out and made known that the Messiah had come, it says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. We aren't told a whole lot about Mary through the years of Jesus' childhood. What we really know about Mary is about the angel Gabriel announcing the birth. We see her here at the birth of Jesus. We see her later towards the end of his life. Think about Mary who knew that her baby was the Son of God and how that would have played out in her life because she had other children. She was a busy mom. She had all the struggles of a normal mom. And she would also have this information in her head, and yet she'd have this child growing up in front of her who clearly was different perhaps from the others, but he was still a precocious child. And there must have been days when it just seemed like, if I can just make it to sundown and get to sleep, I'll feel better in the morning. And yet she's pondering things in her heart that she no doubt takes out of her memory at moments when things are especially confusing and thinks, wait... I remember this moment. I remember shepherds coming. I remember angels telling them. I remember an angel telling me. And it would be a little blank in in terms of looking into the future. She wouldn't have known exactly what was going to happen. But she had the memory that God had visited her with an angel of his own sending and that this was the Messiah. 
I've often thought that if I was Mary, I'd question my sanity from time to time. Oh, me too. That I saw an angel, and it would have been a great comfort to me that my husband had a dream, but I'd probably question the dream and wonder sometimes. Mm -hmm. But God, in His mercy, gave also gave her human confirmations. Right. You know, we don't have it here in the story of Luke, but the three wise men who came, and you have Joseph having the dream to go and flee to Egypt. And then Herod goes and kills all of those babies. So there was this point where the supernatural was intersecting with human confirmations as well. And I also think of, it's going to seem unrelated, but when Jesus is speaking to Peter and Peter asks him about John and he says, what is it to you? Jesus tells us, God tells us only what we need to know. So Mary had the information he wanted her to have, but other people come along and they confirm and they add information to it. And we see that again as we move into the story of him being dedicated in the temple. Let's talk about that story. It specifically mentions Jesus's naming and circumcision on day eight, which Mm -hmm. was required in the law for male children. But it also goes on and mentions that going to the temple with Jesus was the fulfillment of Mary's purification. And that is a fulfillment of the law in Leviticus that stated that a mother who had a male child had to offer purification sacrifices after 40 days. So they went into the temple. This moment with Simeon and Anna that we're going to look at was not Jesus's circumcision. This was a few days later when Mary went in to offer her purification offerings. Luke is careful to tell us about the details of the law that were fulfilled and kept carefully as Jesus was born, as he was named, as Mary goes in for her purification, and how God confirms Jesus's identity in those moments Mm -hmm. as they're being faithful to the law. What struck you about this? Sometimes when I'm reading, I remember thoughts that I had as an Adventist when I'd look at scripture. And I would see here, look, they're keeping the law. They're they're living according to the law. So as I read this this time, I thought of Galatians, actually. I thought of Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were born under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we see Jesus is born under the law. That's why these laws are being kept and yes. fulfilled. This is not Jesus is my example. No. And it's inconsistent to say, well, Jesus went to the synagogue on Sabbath, so I have to keep Sabbath. Well, Jesus's mother went for purification. Did your mom? Good question. So then we have Romans 6, 14 and 15. Paul says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you, the believer in Christ, are not under law but under grace. And he goes on to ask, what then shall we sin if we're under the grace? No. But the point is, is that we are not under the law. So when we see, as we read through these historical accounts Mm -hmm. of scripture, and we see him keeping the law and doing these things, we don't decide that that means that true believers are going to keep the Sabbath because Jesus did. That is such a great point, Nikki. And you know what it reminds me of? I just last night wrote... (laughs) a commentary on a Sabbath school lesson for next week. And once again, the author of the Sabbath school lesson twisted scripture so that 
it's trying to insist that Galatians never says we shouldn't keep the Sabbath. And it actually said that people who say Galatians is teaching us that we're not under the whole law are only saying that because they don't want to keep the Sabbath. I mean, it was a really pretty nasty little (laughs) sentence there. Mm -hmm. What Adventism misses and what I missed as an Adventist is that Jesus came on the scene exactly as prophesied. Yes. And he was the perfect Israel. I did not understand that as an Adventist. He wasn't my example to show me how to keep the law. As you said, the examples of him keeping the law are to show us that he did perfectly what Israel could never do. In fact, in that Sabbath school lesson that I was addressing last night, it was making the point how interesting it is that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and that he used the book of Deuteronomy to counter Satan's temptations, which was so interesting to the author because it was in the wilderness and Deuteronomy was written when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And it's like, yes, the point was Jesus is the perfect Israel and he did perfectly what Israel in the wilderness did not do perfectly. They were sentenced to wander 40 years and for a whole generation to die. Jesus came and defeated Satan with God's own word, God's own word to Israel. And he fulfilled every intention of God for the nation. And he came and demonstrated that, as you said, by being born under the law, by his family and himself fulfilling the law and showing us that he was now going to be that perfect sacrifice that the law had required. So his function was not as an example to us. His function was to demonstrate he was the perfect Israel that everything Israel did had pointed toward. And that he was God. Tied into so many of those prophecies is the eternality and the divinity of the Messiah. And so we see both happening. And I love that John told us that he came baptizing with water so that... Jesus would be manifested to Israel. So, as we see Jesus living under the law, we see he's being manifested to the people who were under the law. And it makes me even more angry at the fact that Ellen White claims for herself the title that was given to John, more than a prophet, and that Adventism has created the argument that she is the John the Baptist to the generation before Jesus comes. No, there's nothing about Ellen White that manifests Jesus. She has given a different Jesus to Adventists, and all of those comparisons between her and John the Baptist are null and void and a lie, actually. But here we have the real Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son, incarnate as a human, and John the Baptist being sent out so he would be manifested to the people under the law. And if we think about the fact that John the Baptist is from the Levitical priesthood representing the law, and that the purpose of John the Baptist and the law is to manifest Christ, who is now the high priest after the order of Melchizedek for all people. It just gives you a bigger, wider picture of the gospel and the relationship of the law to the gospel. It is an identifier. It's not a requirement for us. It's the foreshadowing of the real thing. Wow. That's amazing, Nikki. Well, who did Mary and Joseph see in the temple? Well, they ran into Simeon. (laughs) Tell us about Simeon. Well, he was righteous and devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And it's so amazing to me that we read that the Holy Spirit told Simeon somehow, in some way, 
that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. I know. Simeon was totally set up to be a main player in this story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was God's will for him to be a part of this. And so here comes Mary and Joseph, and they brought Jesus, and Simeon takes him into his arms, and he blessed God. It's such a tender story, really. He prophesied in a sort of Old Testament, New Testament sense. Mm -hmm. He prophesied, and he said, my eyes have seen your salvation, he says to God. And he acknowledges that God is now releasing him, releasing him from his old age, releasing him into eternity, because he's seen the salvation of God for Israel. And you know, it's so interesting, because what his eyes saw was a person. So, he saw God's salvation. God's salvation is a person. The object of our faith has to be in a person, not in law-keeping, not in Sabbath-keeping, not in making sure that you're sanctified properly or that you don't fall. It's in a person. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus means God's salvation or God saves, Yahweh saves. And he says here that, that this salvation, this person, has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. I loved that. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. That's us, Nikki. It's it's the Gentiles. (laughs) (laughs) And Jesus is the glory of the people, Israel. And there's never a sense, truly, in which there's a complete morphing of the people, Israel, and the believing Gentiles. The New Testament speaks of the church, speaks of the body of Christ, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, but it clearly continues to talk about God's faithfulness to Israel, faithfulness to His promises to Israel, and that the Gentiles are brought into those promises. We're still Gentiles. Mm -hmm. In that verse 33, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. There again, I just see them faithfully doing the next right thing and God giving them what they need to know for the next steps. And he goes on to say, to Mary, he addresses her again and says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's he saying to her? This is the first inclination that we get in the texts, that this child is going to suffer right. and that she is going to suffer and that there's going to be conflict in Israel because of him. It was a true prophecy. And Mary ponders these things in her heart. You know, it would be such an amazing thing, not always good necessarily, but a blessing from God nonetheless, to have been in her shoes where she knew God was showing her things, reassuring her convincing her she was not crazy, like you said earlier, (laughs) and yet letting her know so she wouldn't be surprised that heartache was going to come. She couldn't have known fully what that would look like, even though Isaiah talked about the suffering servant. Israel didn't fully understand how that was going to look, but she was going to be at the heart of it because she was his mom. And again, it's hard to fathom this. She was what? 13, 14, maybe 15. Right. Well, then before they leave the temple, who else comes and talks to them? Anna, who's called a prophetess. And she's from the tribe of Asher. She was a widow who had spent a lot of time serving at the temple. 
She never left the temple, actually. Right. Here again, we have details that allow us to confirm who she is. We know who her father is, Fanuel, mm-hmm. and the tribe she's from. So we know that, that this person existed. Right. They had great records. And she'd only been married seven years when she became a widow. It's kind of hard to think. It says she's 84, and she had been married seven years in her earlier life mm-hmm. and had spent the rest of her life in the temple serving God. It's amazing. But she also was prepared to recognize the Messiah, and God let her see him, and she too was allowed to prophesy in a sense. She began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She was telling the good news to Israel, to anybody who'd listened to her. She was an evangelist. Yeah. (laughs) She heard the prophecy of Simeon. And she went proclaiming. Isn't it interesting, Nikki, to think about the stories that we have of Jesus' birth and how few people of any significance, really, were prepared to recognize who he was? Let's think back. We've talked about Zacharias and Elizabeth. We've talked about Mary and Joseph. God prepared them. They were all key players. Then we have the shepherds, (laughs) John the Baptist himself, and we have These two otherwise unknown, but recorded in God's eternal word, old people, old Israelites, Simeon and Anna, and God had prepared them and their hearts believed and they were looking and knew him when he came. Because God revealed himself to all of them. Yeah. Makes me think of the Hebrews Hall of Faith. God interrupts our life, so to speak. He reveals himself to us. And then when we believe, we act on what we believe. And it's not a whole nation that rejoiced because the king was born. His birth was intentionally on God's part obscure, even though John the Baptist was public and had a public message. It wasn't a lot of people who recognized him and who came to worship and who followed him and stayed following him. I think it's just interesting. If there's anything I as a believer can see as an example in Jesus, it's not in how to be good, how to keep the law, how to be saved or to avoid sin. His life as God the Son, my Savior, is an example to me only after I believe and receive His resurrection life. Then I look at Him and see He's an example of suffering. He's an example of faithfulness. And His faithfulness was because He was God's Son. And he was loyal. And he was my Savior. And it's just such a miracle that Christmas happened. And that because of Christmas, Jesus died that perfect death. And he gives us who believe his eternal resurrection life. And then we become his body. And he's never separated from us. That's what Christmas is about. So as we move into Christmas this week... If you haven't met the Messiah who's completed everything necessary for your salvation, who took on human flesh so that he could die a perfect sinless human death and be the fulfillment of all those sacrifices, all those rituals, all those holy days and feast days and the whole law, if you haven't met him and recognized what he did, take the time to go back and read Luke 1 and 2 and see how he fulfilled prophecy. And ask the Lord to show you your need, to reveal your sin, and to grant you repentance. 
and to kneel before this newborn king who is also the risen Savior and place your trust in him and have the best Christmas of your life. If you have questions or comments for us, you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read new online articles every week and sign up for emails that will deliver them right to your inbox each Friday. There's a donation tab there as well if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support as we work together to reach Adventists with the gospel. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we return to our series on life after Adventism with a discussion about overcoming the health message. (laughs) We'll see you then. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.